a currency can fulfill numerous financial use cases. One use case of a currency is store of value. Currency holders can reliably expect their currency to maintain some value, though that value may fluctuate over time. Another use case of currencies is speculation. Currency holders are owning currency in the hope that the market price of the currency will increase over time in the case of a speculative use of a currency. Bitcoin is useful as a store of value and also to some people as an instrument for speculation. However, Bitcoin still does not fulfill the financial use case that most people need from a currency, price stability. The price of Bitcoin fluctuates rapidly, making it difficult to use Bitcoin for small purchases such as coffee. Imagine you want to buy a cup of coffee with Bitcoin. The coffee shop owner needs to offer the option to sell you that cup of coffee using Bitcoin as the medium of exchange. This owner of the coffee shop must denominate the price of that coffee as some number of Bitcoin. Since the price of Bitcoin fluctuates so rapidly, the coffee shop owner needs to adjust the price of that cup of coffee constantly in order to make sure that the coffee is cheap enough for the consumer to want to buy it, but expensive enough to make a profit. It's hard to assign prices to market goods in terms of Bitcoin because the currency is in constant flux. Imagine you're on the way to a coffee shop to get a cup of coffee, and while you're on the way there, the price of Bitcoin shoots up, and the coffee is denominated in Bitcoin. You end up paying $30 worth of Bitcoin for a cup of coffee. Even though many of us would like to use Bitcoin in our everyday lives, most marketplaces are denominated in U.S. dollars or other currencies because a marketplace needs a stable currency in order to operate. This illustrates the massive demand for a stable coin. Rune Christensen is the CEO of MakerDAO, a system that provides a price-stable cryptocurrency. MakerDAO is an elegant set of currencies, collateralized debt, smart contracts, and other incentive tools that result in the creation of several transparent, decentralized financial instruments. Rune joins the show to talk about the importance of stablecoins and how MakerDAO has engineered a decentralized currency that has maintained stability even through tumultuous market conditions. We're doing a hackathon for the new product I'm working on, Find Collabs. Find Collabs is a place where you can meet collaborators and build projects. Our hackathon has a $4,000 first prize and a $1,000 second prize, as well as some other prizes. And it's a great way to meet people and work on cool projects. We've got a lot of collaboration going around Software Daily, the open source project that is a improved way to interface with Software Engineering Daily. You can see our progress by going to softwaredaily.com or by checking out the Find Collabs. Just go to Find Collabs and find the Software Daily Collab. And I'd love to see you in Find Collabs if you're interested in building projects with some other people. DigitalOcean is a reliable, easy-to-use cloud provider. I've used DigitalOcean for years, whenever I want to get an application off the ground quickly. And I've always loved the focus on user experience, the great documentation, and the simple user interface. More and more people are finding out about DigitalOcean and realizing that DigitalOcean is perfect for their application workloads. This year, DigitalOcean is making that even easier with new node types. 
a $15 flexible droplet that can mix and match different configurations of CPU and RAM to get the perfect amount of resources for your application. There are also CPU-optimized droplets, perfect for highly active front-end servers or CI-CD workloads. And running on the cloud can get expensive, which is why DigitalOcean makes it easy to choose the right size instance. And the prices on standard instances have gone down too. You can check out all their new deals by going to do.co slash sedaily. And as a bonus to our listeners, you will get $100 in credit to use over 60 days. That's a lot of money to experiment with. You can make $100 go pretty far on DigitalOcean. You can use the credit for hosting or infrastructure, and that includes load balancers, object storage. DigitalOcean Spaces is a great new product that provides object storage. And, of course, computation. Get your free $100 credit at do.co slash sedaily. And thanks to DigitalOcean for being a sponsor. The co-founder of DigitalOcean, Moisey Uretsky, was one of the first people I interviewed, and his interview was really inspirational for me, so I've always thought of DigitalOcean as a pretty inspirational company. So thank you, DigitalOcean. Rune Christensen, you're the CEO at MakerDAO. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks. Glad to be here. I want to start with the subject of stable coins, because this is not necessarily an intuitive subject to most of the listenership. What is a stable coin and why is it important? Well, in very simple terms, a stable coin is a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin, except that it has a stable value. And stable value is defined as being pegged or being stable reference to an external asset like the US dollar. Why is that important? Well, so, I mean, blockchain has existed for 10 years now, right? But so far, to a large extent, mostly what has been seen is things like speculation and, and, you know, ICOs and a lot of stuff that's really related to kind of like the hype and the, the future potential of blockchain, right? But what stablecoins enable is to finally get past this speculation and the volatility and sort of the you know, this very immaterial kind of, of use cases of the technology and gets us into a phase where we, because we now have stability, we can actually build solutions that just solve real world problems. I mean, and really the, the fundamental problem is that if you're a small business or if you're a, you know, a person that doesn't have access to a bank account or something like that, you, you're already in a situation where you can't accept this extra externality of high volatility to use some new technology, right? If you're going to adopt new technology, it's going to need to be presented to you in a way where it's a very easy choice to switch over and there are no obvious drawbacks. So stablecoins are really a way to, in a sense, make blockchain more invisible, right? Make it more like what you're already used to using. One perfect example of this that comes to mind for me is during the crypto bubble, Stripe stopped accepting Bitcoin, and I don't know if they ever had Ethereum integration, but Stripe is a very forward-thinking company, they're very innovative, and a lot of their customer base, or a significant proportion of their customer base, would want to pay for stuff in Bitcoin, but they had to stop accepting it because there was so much volatility, and there, there was just so much overhead in supporting 
the price volatility of Bitcoin. Yeah, absolutely. And I think another interesting dynamic is also that typically people who hold something like Bitcoin or Ethereum, they hold it because they believe it will go up in value, right? So they're not very happy to actually go on out and, and spend that as money because they expect it to go up in value. And, you know, an interesting story is the story of the 10,000 Bitcoin pizza that was bought, you know, I believe it was back in 2011 or 2012, perhaps, when a guy bought two pizzas for 10,000 Bitcoins. <laughs> and obviously, he wouldn't be too happy. <laughs> He's not too happy about that today. Gets me every time. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, this question I've asked to a lot of different people in, in the crypto ecosystem, like, what do we need to get to this beautiful world of micropayments and decentralized currencies? And for a long time, I thought it was a technological question. Maybe we need better lightning network. Maybe we need better apps for somehow like paying. It seems like the hurdle might be stability. Would you agree with that? Well, I would certainly say that stability is one of the absolute key pillars that are necessary for blockchain to become truly useful in the real world. But there's definitely also like a, a large range of other, you know, well-known issues such as scalability, right? And to a large extent, also regulation and sort of understanding of the technology by the incumbents. Let's talk about currencies more generally. The U.S. dollar is quote-unquote stable, why is that? Why is the U.S. dollar a stable currency? That's an interesting question, right? Because in the end, when you really think about stability and what it means, it becomes obvious that it's actually very subjective, right? Because what's stable to one person may not be stable to someone else. And in fact, I'm sure that uh, there are some people out there who really do think in Bitcoins, right? And really consider Bitcoin to be stable and everything else to be volatile if everything they do is in Bitcoins, right? And they buy their stuff in Bitcoins and receive their salary in Bitcoins and so on. So the thing that makes the US dollar stable is simply that there are so many people who think in terms of US dollars because the US is the world's largest economy and there's more than 300 million people in the country. And it's even used for international trade, right? So ultimately, when, when central banks, they think about stability, they think very much about uh, purchasing power. So something like how many pieces of bread can you buy for a dollar? And what's the, you know, I mean, food and, and housing costs, but also like technology or services and, and all of these different things. Ultimately, what you would like to achieve when you want to have a stable currency is that the price of all of this stuff doesn't sort of swing wildly from day to day, right? And actually, in particular, what's very bad is if the prices of stuff goes down over time. So you typically want not very wild swings, and you kind of want prices to slightly increase over time. And that's the point where people in general and an economy in general seems to be most able to flourish. I want to go just a little bit deeper on this question, because to me, it's it's really hard to understand. It's hard to think through why the U.S. dollar seems to remain flat, at least in terms of how we operate with it as humans, is it due to some like almost religious cultural belief that we just say, we need this thing so badly, we need this idea of a stable currency, and we don't even know why we need it, but intuitively, we just feel like we need this stable, agreed-upon currency that kind of underpins everything else, 
is it like that or is it is this is this the work of central banks and policymakers that are doing really really complex calculations to figure out how to buy things and sell things and increase debt and decrease debt in order to maintain that stability? I would say it's a combination of both, right? But I would say first and foremost, it really is that subjective personal feeling of stability that matters the most. So it's really a question of whether, you know, if you're receiving your salary in US dollars and you're buying all your stuff in US dollars, then you know, at some point, you, you like that's simply how your world works, right? You simply think of the US dollar as sort of the, the fixed constant in your world that you can rely on to, you know, be how you want to sort of save up your money, and but also just how you think of everything else in terms of its value. And I think something that's important to remember is that it's actually only primarily the Americans that think that the US dollar is sort of the fundamentally stable currency, right? I mean, so myself, I'm Danish, right? So for me, the US dollar isn't actually really stable. Like if I have a bunch of US dollars, I'm not going to be, it could easily fall significantly in its purchasing power compared to my local currency. And for that reason, it's not as stable as my local currency, right? And that's kind of how I think in terms of value of different things. But that's sort of the most important thing is that just like the element of how do you think in terms of the stuff you buy and in terms of what you earn from your job. But then the second element is definitely also then actually that the central bankers and the, the regulators of the economy are actually able to try to use different monetary policy levers to then ultimately ensure that it makes sense for you as an American or as an individual to think of the US dollar as being stable. Because when you go to the shop to buy something with US dollars, you generally get around the same thing, whether you go on one day of the week or another. And there are actually some countries where this fails, right? And Argentina is an interesting example. Venezuela is an even more extreme example. But in, in Argentina, you kind of have a society where the Argentine peso isn't completely destroyed in the same way that the, the Bolivar is in Venezuela. But you still ultimately get an economy where people, they think in terms of pesos, but they don't really consider them stable because the inflation is just too high. But pretty much every single other country in the world, they do have this sense that their own local currency is kind of like how they think of value. And also because they, they can trust their government to properly manage it, they can consider it stable. For whatever reason that US dollar is stable, why do we need to create an additional stable currency? Why do we need a stable coin? Well, so it's wrong to think of stable coins as kind of like a replacement to existing fiat currency. It's really more of an extension. Right. In the same way that you could think of a Visa card being an extension to banknotes because you can do new stuff with it. Stablecoins really fulfill that same role, except on an even more you know, broad basis, because there are simply so many new use cases that opened up when you have stablecoins. And that's because what stablecoins bring with them is the power of the blockchain. So it allows for completely new use cases based on the fact that blockchains are programmable in how you want to use them. And then there is also just the general fundamentals of blockchain money, which is things like instant instant transferability, very low cost of transactions, and this permissionless access by everyone. I agree with you on the thrust for a stablecoin, and I think if people are still skeptical of that, they can take a look at plenty of other articles and documents that have been created around the need for a stablecoin. We know that this thing would provide a lot of utility. 
what are some of the different approaches to creating a stable coin that have been tried before MakerDAO? Well, so interestingly, MakerDAO is actually one of the oldest stable coins in the whole space. But in general, there are considered to be three different types of stable coins. So the first type of stable coin is called a centralized stable coin. And the way a centralized stable coin works is that there is essentially a trusted custodian that holds a lot of, let's say, US dollar in a bank account and then issues a number of tokens that correspond to those US dollars in the bank account. And then this trusted custodian then promises holders of that token that at any time someone can come with a token and redeem it for the underlying US dollars in the bank account from that trusted custodian. And the advantage of this approach is that it's quite simple. So it's also very easy to understand why a stablecoin with this model will remain stable because you know you can always just go and actually redeem it directly for underlying US dollars, right? The disadvantage is, of course, that it's completely centralized. So you're essentially letting go of a lot of the benefits of the blockchain when you use this kind of of stablecoin because let's say if you're trying to build a decentralized application, if you build this decentralized application on top of a centralized stablecoin, you know, you ultimately dependent on this centralized stablecoin as the trusted sort of guarantor of your of your application and you're not really building it truly on the blockchain itself right there is this trusted middleman so that means that centralized stablecoins basically have a lot of, of obvious use cases in particular they're very good when you're trying to interact with other stuff that's already centralized and then they also have a number of obvious places where they aren't so good which is for instance when you're trying to build decentralized applications and another interesting fact around how centralized stablecoins have proliferated is that because there is this strong element of the trusted custodian, that's really the, the central component of it, we've seen uh, just a wide range of centralized stablecoins emerge because they all compete on their different brand of trust. So one person may not trust Coinbase's stablecoin, for instance, but would be much more happy to trust JP Morgan's stablecoin. So there's, there's a big room for competition there. And as a result, we've seen at this point, I believe uh, hundreds of them already emerge. So that's the first kind, and it's called a centralized stablecoin. The second type of stablecoin is a decentralized collateral-backed stablecoin. So a decentralized collateral-backed stablecoin is a type of stablecoin where there's no trusted custodian who ultimately controls the stablecoin and ultimately guarantees its value, but rather there is a decentralized smart contract system on the blockchain that automatically is able to store collateral assets, so basically other blockchain assets, and then use those collateral assets to back the value of the stablecoin. So it's a little bit like the gold standard, perhaps, except that you can have different types of assets backing the stablecoin ultimately. And also the huge advantage is that it's completely decentralized. So there's no like custodian, no counterparty you have to trust to manage it correctly. And it's also completely transparent. So you can always go and in real time audit exactly how much collateral there is in the system compared to how many stable coins are in circulation. And and through that, as a user, it's very easy to make the judgment call on whether you want to trust a particular decentralized collateral backed stable coin. And finally there is the third type of stable coin, which is not too well known. And many people believe it's not really possible to actually make this approach work. But basically, it's a decentralized, non-collateralized stablecoin. So it's a, it's a decentralized stablecoin that is backed by nothing other than an algorithm, essentially. 
And so the, the approach is to try to have an algorithm that prints stable coins when there's more demand for stable coins and then removes them from circulation when there's less demand for them. And then through this algorithm, be able to basically stabilize the market price of the, of the stable coin. And the criticism of this kind of stable coin is that they're, because it's backed by nothing, it ultimately there's ultimately the chance that it could just essentially go poof and, and uh, collapse completely. And so far, there is actually one of these types of stable coins that have done exactly that because it, it, it basically ran out of, I guess you can say it ran out of momentum and then people realized that there was nothing real backing it. And then as a result, it just completely collapsed and wasn't able to recover. Deploying to the cloud should be simple. You shouldn't feel locked in and your cloud provider should offer you customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Because you might be up in the middle of the night trying to figure out why your application's having errors. And your cloud provider's support team should be there to help you. Linode is a simple, efficient cloud provider with excellent customer support. And today you can get $20 in free credit by going to linode.com sedaily and signing up with code SEDAILY2019. Linode has been offering hosting for 16 years, and the roots of the company are in its name. Linode gives you Linux nodes at an affordable price, with security, high availability, and customer service. You can get $20 in free credit by going to linode.com SEDAILY, signing up with code SEDAILY2019, and get your application deployed to Linode, Linode makes it easy to deploy and scale those applications with high uptime. You've got features like backups and node balancers to give you additional tooling when you need it. And, of course, you can get free credits of $20 by going to linode.com slash sedaily and entering code sedaily2019. Thanks for supporting Software Engineering Daily, and thanks to Linode. So the first two that you described are the ones that I would like to focus on. So the first type of stablecoin you described is the the centralized stablecoin, where you have a guarantor of the stability of the stablecoin, such as Coinbase or JP Morgan. And in this model, you have a single centralized entity that says, look, we're going to do what's necessary to maintain the stability of this coin, and we're backing that stability with our reputation. In some ways, this is similar to the idea of the U.S. dollar, where I think you could think of the U.S. dollar as a stability-based, you know, it's, people trust the stability of the U.S. dollar be, based on the stability of the U.S. government, that we, you know, the success of the U.S. government over the last, you know, several hundred years, perhaps. And then the second approach, which is MakerDAO's approach, is is a fully decentralized approach. Well, not fully decentralized yet. We'll we'll get into that, but but mostly decentralized, more decentralized, on a path to fully decentralized. What are the salient differences in the approaches of the centralized stablecoin versus the decentralized stablecoin? Yeah, I mean that's really the key question, right? So. Well, so like I was saying, right, the big advantage of a centralized stablecoin is that it's 
very pragmatic and it's very easy to understand and it's easy to use. Ultimately, it's easy to keep it stable through arbitrage because it's quite simple to understand how if the stablecoin is, let's say, trading on the market above $1, you could do very well to just go with real US dollars, generate more of these stablecoins and then sell them into the market to bring the price down. And, and opposite that, if you find a centralized stablecoins that's priced at 50 cents on the market somewhere, you'd be very happy to buy that immediately up until the price goes back to $1 because you know you can go and redeem it for real US dollars one-to-one through the custodian. And then the, the advantage of the, the decentralized stablecoin like uh, MegaDAO's DAI stablecoin is that you have this complete transparency into the system, right? So while you're not able to directly redeem it one-to-one for US dollars in a bank account, you're rather able to directly see exactly that the value is really there, right? So you don't have to worry whether or not the custodian is actually going to pay out and whether or not they're going to live up to their promise. You can just go and check directly on the blockchain to see whether the value is there or not. Ultimately, that, that means that you, for instance, remove this potential element of too big to fail, where with a centralized stablecoin, the larger it gets, you kind of like feel like you're putting more and more of your eggs in one basket, right? If, if a large portion of the economy ends up being like sitting with just one trusted custodian. Whereas with a decentralized stablecoin, because you first of all have complete transparency and insight into what's going on with that stablecoin, you can make sure that there isn't some sort of underhanded accounting happening somewhere deep in the machinery. And secondly, there just is no central counterparty or central authority that ultimately controls the system, right? Or has some sort of special access to the system. And as a result, it just basically aligns better with the values and the advantages of the blockchain and allows like more, more interesting and more diverse types of applications to be built that can really attain true decentralization. I'd like to get into an explanation of what MakerDAO does. I think it's a really elegant and beautiful system when, when you start to, to dive into it. Unfortunately, to understand it, you need to understand at a certain level what a smart contract is, what Bitcoin is, how some of the dynamics of this ecosystem work, and that's kind of beyond the scope of this podcast. So people can can listen back or, or listen to other podcasts or, or read about other you know read from other resources what smart contract programming is, how basic blockchain stuff works. But we're going to kind of make an assumption that the listener is is a little familiar with the smart contract world. So let's explain what MakerDAO is at a high level, and then we'll, we'll get into some of the technical weeds. Yeah. So at a very high level, MakerDAO is, an, is a financial infrastructure on the blockchain that enables, first and foremost, the DAI stablecoin, so at a decentralized stablecoin of the type we just discussed, and also a number of other interesting financial use cases, such as collateralized lending, and ultimately decentralized governance. And the most important aspect really is the decentralized stablecoin, which is called DAI. Because this stablecoin is, and just this use case is very relevant to most people in the sense that it's just a better form of money. You know, it, it's like, a, like we were saying right in the beginning, right? It's basically an asset like Bitcoin or like any other cryptocurrency, but it has a stable price of one US dollar. And it can be sent incredibly cheaply and it can be used in all these very advanced 
programmable use cases. But most importantly, it's like it's actually something for regular people to use, right? So it's not really that difficult for someone to just, you know, like get their salary and die and then send it to their friends via their phones or buy stuff in online shops that accept cryptocurrency with it. It's, you know, and it doesn't really require a deep knowledge of, of the underlying mechanics to just use DAI as a currency, just like you don't need to know how the Federal Reserve works to use US dollar cash. But the actual, I guess you can say, machinery that backs the DAI and makes it possible for DAI to remain stable, then is this, this platform for decentralized, collateralized lending. So in a way, you can actually think of Maker kind of like infrastructure for a bank because it, it, it has both sides of the equation, just like you have in a bank, right? On one hand, it has savings and deposits, so basically money for regular people, right? So, you know, the way that normal people, they have money in the bank and they can go and spend that money or they can go and they can save up that money in the bank account. But then the other element is that banks also give out loans, right? So to, to small businesses or to people who need a mortgage, and Maker does the same thing. So on one hand, it has the stablecoin for regular people to use as money that is worth one US dollar and very simple to use. And on the other hand, it has this more advanced functionality for advanced users that allows them to actually access collateralized lending on the blockchain. MakerDAO involves two currencies. It involves DAI and Maker or MKR. Why does MakerDAO need multiple currencies? Yeah, that's a great point. So DAI, again, is this simple stablecoin for for regular people. And then what I was just talking about was this decentralized, collateralized lending platform. And then actually, which which is for more advanced users. And then actually, there is also, yeah, like a, a third type of user and a third type of use case of the system, which is for not just advanced users, probably like highly, highly specialized users. And this is the governance element of the system. So the element where the fundamental mechanics of the system is controlled in a decentralized manner. And that is where the MKR token comes in. So the MKR token is essentially the governance token. So where DAI is this simple, stable coin that's easy to use as money for regular people, MKR is this advanced governance token for specialists who use it to vote in the system on how to properly regulate and how to properly stabilize the system. And this, and what they essentially regulate is the dynamics of how the collateralized lending platform works so that the DAI stablecoin is kept stable through the dynamics of that collateralized lending platform. And just to assuage people who are already thinking, oh my God, this sounds really complicated and probably is going to fail completely... It's worth noting that when Bitcoin came out, it looked really complicated. And over time, people developed an intuition for how it worked, despite the fact that when it first came out, it was like the most confusing thing, even to advanced distributed systems people, as far as I can tell. And over time, it's just won people over. And and all computer systems are, to some extent, like that. I mean, you know, basic encryption probably, I, I don't know the history, but it probably seemed very confusing and impractical when it first came out. And I think that's, you know, whether or not MakerDAO succeeds, intuitively to me, it, it feels like a, a system that looks complicated at first, but over time will make a lot of sense to people. So... 
there's the functionality of DAI, which is the stablecoin, and the functionality of Maker, which is this other currency that you kind of need in order to have governance and 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 some other features. So so we need to discuss these two different currencies and how they manifest, what their interaction is. So DAI, this this stablecoin, how does DAI get created? Yeah, so DAI is created through the collateralized lending platform itself. I actually think the easiest way to try to get a, a bit of a more intuitive understanding of it is to just come with some examples, right? So so like I was saying earlier, right, it's kind of like a banking infrastructure, right? So DAI is kind of like the deposit of the, the money in the bank. And then the collateralized lending platform is kind of like getting loans from the bank, like getting a mortgage from the bank. And what's interesting is actually when you go to a bank and you get a mortgage for your house, for instance, what actually happens is that the bank doesn't have that money already sitting somewhere that it, that it lends to you. No, the bank actually creates the money it gives you. I mean, you can really say it creates it out of thin air. The moment you get the loan, the moment that the bank takes control of your the deed to your house on their balance sheet as security for their for the mortgage, then they are able to actually create this new money that they then lend to you and put into your account that you can then you know use to, for instance, buy the house or go and spend on other stuff. And this is called fractional reserve banking, right? So it means that there is some fraction of the money that is created on the basis of the value of the loans in the bank. So DAI works the same way. The moment that collateral is put into the system through the collateralized lending platform, the system is then able to assess the value of that collateral. So right now, typically the way a transaction works is that you would put in, let's say, $300 worth of Ethereum tokens. And you would then want to take out, let's say, $100 worth of DAI. So you'd want to to borrow 100 DAI from the system. So the system would then analyze to see whether it is safe to do so, whether it's safe to take $300 worth of Ethereum and give you a $100 loan on the basis of those $300 worth of Ethereum as collateral. And if the system, based on its internal risk parameters, as they're called, so basically the parameters that decide what kind of terms you can get with different types of collateral, if the system believes that it is safe to do this, to to back 100 DAI with $300 worth of Ethereum, then it will allow you to directly generate that DAI in the same way that you know a bank generates money when it, they give they do fractional reserve lending. So ultimately, the DAI enters and exits circulations and, and ultimately exists based on the collateral that people put into the system when they borrow from it. So if I have some Ethereum, I can... I can pay an ETH and get some DAI, and that's that's mediated by a smart contract. I put up my my one ETH ether and gets translated into into DAI. Why would I want to do that? Yeah, so I mean, that's a key question, right? So the important thing to understand is that it's not you're not exchanging your Ethereum to DAI, right? You are pledging your Ethereum as collateral for a loan that you then the loan you then receive in DAI, right? And the best thing to compare it to really is a mortgage, right? Because in a mortgage, what you do is you give your house to the bank, essentially. The bank looks at the value of your house and they say, okay, we can see that this house is worth this much. So we'll, let's say they think that the house is worth a million dollars. Then they'll lend you $800,000 of cash. And you then take that $800,000 of cash and you go and you buy whatever, a bunch of cars or whatever you want to do with it, right? 
but the bank now has a claim on your house. And over time, you have to pay back your loan, right? Because you want to make sure that the bank doesn't one day seize your house. And ultimately, when you pay back your entire loan, in the end, you then gain full control and full ownership over your house again. But the important thing is that while the bank has that claim on your house, it's still your house, right? You still get to live in your house. So that's kind of the the key aspect of collateralized lending is that it's about accessing liquidity. So accessing cash or accessing value of assets that you don't want to sell. You still want to own them, but you want to also access the value of those assets. And in the in the blockchain world, in the Ethereum world, the reason why people would go and let's say put in $300 worth of Ethereum as collateral to then borrow 100 DAI with could very well be because they they believe so much that the price of Ethereum is going to go up that they just do not want to sell their Ethereum, right? So maybe they they have some bill, you know, there's something they need to pay and they need to spend $100 on it. But they also really think that the price of Ethereum is going to go up, so they don't want to start selling their you know, $100 of, the, of their $300 worth of Ethereum, they'd much rather just take a loan, pay the bill, and then later pay down the loan so that they still have access to those $300 worth of Ethereum. And there's actually some examples of this as well. Like there's been some people who, like for instance, wanted to buy a car. There's been multiple examples of, of, of people using the maker system for that. So they would, they want to buy a car, but they don't want to sell their Ethereum. So they collateralize their Ethereum borrow enough money to buy the car, then go and buy the car, and then pay down the loan over time through the salary. And throughout this entire process, they will then have kept their exposure to Ethereum. So if the price of Ethereum would have gone up, they would have gotten that entire benefit because the whole time they still kept owning the Ethereum as it was sitting in the maker system. So now the listener is thinking, cool, collateralized debt platform. Why is this related to... A stablecoin? And that's basically what I was talking about earlier, right? That it is through this collateralized lending that the DAI stablecoin is created in the first place. So the DAI stablecoin, in a sense, although you could, I mean, although it's really the most important product of the Maker Platform and the product that is most relevant to most people from the Maker Platform, you could also just simply consider it a byproduct of the collateralized lending process. Because basically the DAI tokens are what ultimately are created out of these collateralized positions that exist in the maker system when someone comes to take a loan. So it's, it's almost like a, the accounting tool that allows you to then receive the value out of the system. And you then, so, so you, know, you put in your Ethereum, you borrow the DAI from the system, you now have the die, and obviously you want to do something with it, right? You don't just want to borrow die just to hold die. You want to actually go and let's say buy more Ethereum or pay down a bill or buy a car or something. And that's when you know the stablecoin element becomes apparent, right? Because that's where there then is an opportunity for someone else to buy your die from you that you've just created. And it is in this process that borrow and lender is essentially paired up, right? This is where someone comes with actual dollars, for instance, and says, I have $100. I want to buy 100 DAI because I need a stable coin to use on some decentralized application. And the guy who just did this collateralized lending, he, he put in his Ethereum and he generated 100 DAI, but he still needs to turn it into real money because he needs to pay his bill. And then that's how the, the dynamic happens, essentially. So you get these two types of users. On one hand, you have the regular users 
that just want to use a stable coin who just need stability and need to maybe send money to their relatives abroad or need to use a decentralized application. And then you have the, the collateralized borrowers, right? Those who have some collateral assets like Ethereum and want to access liquidity from those assets and ultimately go and use that liquidity for some, to buy something in the real world, for instance. And those two groups then need to be evenly matched, essentially, so that there are just as many people who want to borrow from the system as there are people who want to hold their money in the system, right? So, so have demand for the stablecoin. And as long as you have that balance between the two, then you also get stability in the price of DAI. So I think it's, again, worth noting here that for people who are thinking this, that this looks like a big bucket of like too much complexity going on, one interesting property, if you look at Bitcoin, is when we got Bitcoin, we didn't just get decentralized currency. We got these other properties like decentralized information storage and smart contract platforms and these other side effects of the the in the core innovation almost because bitcoin required such a, a a leap in game theoretic thinking and and i think this you know you could you could describe MakerDAO in 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 kind of similar terms it's like you know in order to get a stable coin we have to go through this mental exercise of what stability actually means and what are some ways that we can manipulate incentives in order to enforce that stability. And just one of the little financial abstractions you have to play with that can really push people in a certain direction is this idea of debt and collateral. And so for people who are curious about this, you know, it's worth it's worth just like taking a look at the system because I think it's pretty interesting. I don't think we'll be able to really convert people to really understanding MakerDAO fully over the podcast medium, but I, I am glad to shed some light on the rough contours of it, at least. And to get a little bit further, I think it's worth talking about a few other abstractions that, that you work with, because you have this liquidation ratio that describes how these collateralized debt positions are going to get liquidated or how they're going to get judged for their their quality because obviously debt in the non-crypto world has different qualities like you know a debt that's 20 years old and has no chance of being paid back you know maybe it gets sold off for pennies even though it was a million dollars of debt you know debt ha- debt has subjective qualities to it in terms of you know at what rate it's going to get quote unquote liquidated and then you also have you know this property that that you need to figure out how to actually get die to track the price of the U.S. dollar, because that's the goal of this system, at least from the stablecoin perspectives. You need to track USD. So let's go a little bit deeper into the technical aspects and talk about liquidity and how you track USD. Right. So I think the liquidation ratio that you just mentioned is is one of the really important aspects of the system, right? Because the liquidation ratio is kind of the point where this like you say right where the, the system basically says okay i'm no longer willing to hold this loan on my balance sheet anymore so basically it means that the collateral that's backing a particular loan it has now fallen low enough that it has to be liquidated it has to be immediately sold off and that's the, the liquidation ratio is then essentially the ratio of debt of collateral to debt where that happens which right now in the current version of the system, 
is 150% for Ethereum. So that means that if you have borrowed 100 DAI from the system and you've used, let's say, $200 worth of Ethereum to initially back that loan with, if the price of those $200 worth of Ethereum then falls to a certain extent and you actually reach the point where your Ethereum is now only worth, let's say, $145, then what happens is you have $100 of debt that's backed by $145 of collateral, which is a ratio, you know, a, a ratio of collateral to debt that's below 150%. And then the system automatically actually detects this and then immediately proceeds to liquidate this position. And what that means is basically it takes the collateral, it just sells the collateral on the open market and retrieves as much die as it possibly can. Hopefully, it's able to retrieve at least 100 die, which should be possible in most situations because the collateral had a value of $145. And then whatever's left over is then given to the original owner or the original person who took the loan in the first place. So this way, the system really guarantees that even if the price of Ethereum, for instance, or the price of the collateral assets in the system fall over time, it's still able to maintain a proper ratio of collateral in the system to outstanding debt and outstanding stable coins in circulation. And again, this is very similar to how banks work, right? Because this is also what happens if you have a housing crash and people's mortgages go underwater, right? If you have a mortgage where suddenly the debt that you owe to the bank is higher than the actual value of the house that you pledge to the bank as collateral for the mortgage, the bank will then also go and be like, I don't want this loan anymore. I'm just going to take your house. I'm going to sell it. And uh, you know, I'm going to try to de-risk out of this situation. So that's kind of where the, the liquidation ratio sits in the system, right? It's, 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 it's a risk parameter. So it's a way for the system to understand whether a particular, you know, a particular loan makes sense from a risk perspective or whether it has become too risky and needs to be sold off immediately. Testing a mobile app is not easy. I know this from experience working on the SE Daily mobile application. We have an iOS client and an Android client, and we get bug reports all the time from users that are on operating systems that we did not test. People have old iPhones. There are a thousand different versions of Android. With such a fragmented ecosystem, it's easy for a bug to occur in a system that you didn't test. BitBar is a platform for mobile app testing. If you've struggled to get to continuous delivery in your mobile application, check out bitbar.com sedaily and get a free month of mobile app testing. BitBar tests your app on real devices, no emulators, no virtual environments. BitBar has real Android and iOS devices, and the BitBar testing tools integrate with Jenkins, Travis CI, and other continuous integration tools. Check out bitbar.com slash sedaily and get a free month of unlimited mobile app testing. BitBar also has an automated test bot, which is great for exploratory testing without writing a single line of code. You have a mobile app that your customers depend on, and you need to test the target devices before your application updates roll out. Go to bitbar.com slash sedaily and find out more about BitBar. You get a free month of mobile application testing on real devices, and that's pretty useful. 
So you can get that deal by going to bitbar.com slash sedaily, get real testing on real devices, get help from the automated test bot so that you have some exploratory testing without writing any code, and thanks to BitBar. You can check out bitbar.com slash sedaily to get that free month and to support Software Engineering Daily. In order to track the price of USD, we need to do something called choosing an oracle, and we also need to figure out how we're going to track the price of the USD oracle price that that we agree on, and that's going to sound foreign to some people. Can you explain the term oracle in more detail and, and how we're using an oracle to track the price of USD? Yeah, so actually, I think there like there's kind of two separate points here. So uh, first, let me just talk a little bit about oracles and actually what's known as the oracle problem. So because MakerDAO needs to know when a particular loan has become risky, right? It needs to know whether there is enough value of Ethereum or other collateral sitting in the system to back a particular loan. It actually needs to know the value of that collateral. Right. So right now, when Maker is giving out Ethereum-backed loans, Maker needs to know the price of Ethereum in real time because that's how it knows whether you know 100 debt is safe to back by two ETH or not. Right. It needs to know that those two ETH are then worth, let's say, 150 dollars each, and as a result, the total loan is 100 100 dollars of debt backed by 300 dollars of Ethereum. So the problem is that smart contracts don't inherently understand. Like, you know, can they can inherently see the real world, right? You can't really like see beyond just the state of the blockchain if you're a smart contract. So oracles are the components of a smart contract system that deliver trusted data from the outside world. So essentially what they do is that what they are are basically like components in the system where you can push in data from outside. And the oracle problem is then the fact that you could potentially abuse this kind of, of input into the system. And there's a number of, of solutions for that. And Maker is probably the project that is leading the most in terms of how you actually overcome the Oracle problem. And we do have a really good solution that ultimately allows the system to, to safely operate, even with potentially billions of dollars worth of value in it, despite the fact that you always will have that, that Oracle problem. But so the Oracle, the Oracle and, and sort of the price of Ethereum in the USD is mainly about when the system has to make the judgment that a particular loan has to be liquidated because the value of the collateral has now fallen too low. That is like being able, like for the system to be able to actually make that decision, it needs to have some sort of input source that gives it the price of Ethereum. And that's called the Oracle. Now for the second part on how you actually keep DAI stable, that is actually slightly, I mean, it does, in the long run, that process will actually also rely on oracles. But in the short run, it actually doesn't. So in the short run, the process of stabilizing DAI is done directly through the governance process. So it is actually managed directly by the holders of MKR who ultimately vote on the risk parameters of the system. So ultimately, they vote on the way that the different financial dynamics of the system are set up to properly just like protect the system and keep it stable in the right way. So for instance, MKR holders are the ones who've chosen that right now the liquidation ratio is 150%. 
And then the other really, really important risk parameter that MKR holders choose and that they use to actually balance the price of, of DAI in real time is the interest rates of the system. And right now in Maker, that's called the stability fee. So the stability fee is effectively the interest rate you pay on your loan over time when you have collateralized some Ethereum into the system and you've borrowed some DAI out of the system. When you later go to pay back that DAI and retrieve your collateral, just like when you pay down your mortgage to get your house back, you also have to pay an interest rate. And that interest rate then is variable and it is managed in real time well, not particularly, not really in real time. It's managed like on a right now, mostly like for the most part on a bi-weekly or monthly basis and is adjusted to make sure that the supply and demand for DAI meets in the middle exactly at the $1 point of equilibrium. So basically that's how it's, it's kept stable in the short run, right? So basically the interest rates are continuously modified to ensure that if there is, let's say, too little demand for DAI, right? There is, there's simply, there, there are too many people who want to borrow DAI. There's too many people who collateralize Ethereum into the system and borrow DAI and try to sell it on the market. And there are not really that many people who want to hold DAI. What you would get in this scenario is, you know, higher supply and lower demand, which results in a lower price, right? So that could ultimately result in a price below $1. So what the governance then does in this situation is it votes to increase the interest rates because by increasing the interest rates, there's now going to be less interest, like, I mean, less uh, demand by people to borrow from the system because now it's become more expensive to borrow from the system. And there's even going to be people who will want to immediately close their loans because they'll decide, I don't want to, I don't want this loan anymore. It's become too expensive. The interest rate is too high. I'm going to pay down my debt and, and retrieve my collateral. And through that, they will actually become like the, the supply of DAI will then go down, right? Because there'll be less debt in the system and the demand for DAI will increase because there'll be people who go and actually buy DAI on the market to obtain that DAI and use it to pay down that debt with. So ultimately that means that the governance can adjust the price of DAI in the marketplace through these interest rates, ultimately pushing either the price up if it's too low or pushing it down if it's too high. And through that actually get real stability. When I was looking at MakerDAO, I was thinking about, and, and maybe this is this is not a good way of looking at it, but I was thinking about it as you have this system of DAI, which is like this debt-based system where people can borrow money and and you uh, you know you're you're aiming to have this stable currency that you can pay things in terms of and you you know you can get more or less of that based on kind of your your credit or the the amount of collateral that you're willing to put up and and then on the other side you have this MKR currency which is in a governance instrument and people who have MKR have skin in the game to to govern things intelligently and and what what are they governing they're governing the same thing that kind of the 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 central banks are governing in the centralized world so you have a, a decentralized governance mechanism for working on those interest rates because we the public understand to some degree i mean people who are interested understand what central banks do and how they create incentives for for currencies to remain stable 
but you know most of us like don't don't aren't concerned with that and similarly most of us don't own own MKR but people who do do own MKR maybe their policy wonks and they want to they want to help decide and vote on where the interest rates should go in order to enforce this system of stability in in the die world is that a fair way of looking at the overall system yeah i mean i would definitely say so that I mean, some people do indeed describe Maker as a decentralized central bank and describe MKR holders and the governance as kind of, you know, buying a token that then gives you a vote on the on the board of governors in the same way that there are these seven people that control the USD interest rates in, you know, the, the Federal Reserve Board of Governors. With Maker, it's just anyone who holds the MKR token who gets that, that access to actually be a part of that policy discussion. And then also what you mentioned, which is really critical, is that there is this skin in the game element that MKR holders don't just freely get to, you know, choose and vote and do whatever they want with the system just for fun, right? They actually have very clear and very strong incentives that make sure that they always make the choices that they believe will keep DAI the most stable. And that's because ultimately the the, the stability of the system itself is in, is underwritten by MKR holders in the sense that if there is basically a default in the system or an under collateralization, or you could also think of it as like a bad debt, right? So basically, if there is, let's say, a loan in the system that reaches a point where the loan has a hundred die of debt, but it only has fifty dollars worth of collateral backing that hundred that hundred die, then you have a problem, right? Because now you have a hundred die that's in circulation, but there's no way for that die to kind of be fully backed by collateral because this particular loan is under-collateralized. And that could happen, for instance, if there's a very, very sudden and very steep crash in the price of the collateral. So it would fall so much in value that it actually goes below even the, the one-to-one ratio, right? The value of collateral against the debt. And what you then get is this shortfall, right? So there'd be a, like there's a $50, there's $50 missing basically in the system. And if you don't deal with that, you would actually have insolvency, right? You would have a system that ultimately uh, doesn't really make sense in the in the way that die would no longer really be worth one dollar because a part of the die would be unbacked. And MKR ultimately underwrites this risk, meaning that if there is fifty dollars missing in the system, the system actually detects this and starts diluting and generating more MKR tokens to then sell on the open market in order to buy back DAI from the market and ultimately recapitalize this shortfall. And that that is why MKR holders are very heavily incentivized to vote in such a way that you don't get a situation where you actually have this kind of under-collateralization and this kind of potential insolvency in the system. Because they just get they have to pay directly the moment they make a mistake and don't govern correctly. And then on the flip side, they of course also get a benefit if they govern it very well and they keep it stable then there's essentially this continuous like value stream that goes to MKR and ensures that over time the total supply of MKR falls. So with these two dynamics together, it's kind of like a it's kind of like a, a private or maybe you could even say publicly owned decentralized central bank that manages this credit system versus stablecoin system to ensure that it remains in balance so that the stablecoin remains in $1. And also ensures that the collateral and the the sort of the backing of the stablecoin remains healthy and remains over collateralized, so that the stablecoin is always going to be worth one dollar. 
there are many engineering problems that we could discuss in in actually building this system. We've talked at it about it mostly at a, a an economic level, and we haven't really talked about creating and deploying smart contracts and testing those smart contracts and actually rolling out this system. It's quite a feat of engineering, and uh, you know maybe we can discuss it in a future episode, or I can talk to a CTO or an engineer on your team. I would actually love to do that at some point in the future. But I want to I want to begin to close out by just talking about your reflections on the crypto bubble and the how the ecosystem changed since then. Like my understanding is is one of the things that kind of tested MakerDAO as as a durable system was the fact that Dai remained fairly stable throughout the the extremes, the tumultuous extremes of the crypto bubble. Tell me about your reflections on on the crypto bubble and how the world has changed since that bubble. Yeah, so I think I definitely think that the crypto bubble was obviously going to happen. And I also think that it's in general been very healthy for the ecosystem because it's really made sure that today crypto startups and blockchain startups primarily focus on actually making good products and making stuff that that makes sense, right? And not just making uh, white papers that sound good. And it's also just really incredible that we managed to launch the DAI stablecoin almost exactly at the peak of the bubble. And then rode, like you said, rode the bubble all the way down to the bottom. Because this was really... You could, we could, you could really see this as a, as a very uh, significant trial by fire of the system, right? Because the system is backed by Ethereum. And in this period of time, Ethereum lost something like 98% of its value from the most extreme point to the lowest point. At least 95%, I believe. And despite that incredible loss in value over time, DAI did remain stable. So this was really like proof that the various dynamics in the system that, that kick in whenever uh, something like the value of the collateral falling too much we're able to to dynamically keep the system stable over time, even despite these very extreme conditions. And uh, on one hand, I mean, it was pretty incredible to see that play out. But on the other hand, it was, of course, also exactly as uh, we expected, right? Because we did build it exactly to be able to withstand that kind of scenario. And one of our main takeaways is ultimately that the system will always be able to handle this kind of situation where there is a sustained, you know, like deflation of a bubble over time. And really, the only thing that poses a serious risk to the system is a very, very sudden, like really, you know, a matter of hours or a matter of one or two days, a complete crash in the value of the collateral. So that would be the point where the system wouldn't be able to maintain its stability. But otherwise, something like the crypto bubble really was just in general a very nice test of the system and ultimately also a good thing for the, for the blockchain ecosystem as a whole and the kind of, of startups and the kind of values that people now focus on when they do blockchain products. To take analogies even even further, there's a lot of analogies I can I can explore in in this subject. I think that when other cloud providers started getting created, AWS was really happy about that. And that's because when the entire world was relying on AWS for cloud infrastructure, it puts so much pressure on AWS to be able to to stand up in the face of that, and you know now we have these other cloud providers like Google and and Microsoft, 
and it gives us a sense of failover. It's unlikely that both of these, you know, all three of these cloud providers, or you could even talk about DigitalOcean, it's, un- it's unlikely that all of these will go up in smoke at exactly the same time. You know, whereas, you know, the centralized failure case is really problematic for for our entire world. And that's kind of where we're at with the world of currencies today. Like, if we're all dependent on USD as the quote-unquote stable currency of choice, some black swan event that totally wipes out the United States and devalues our currency that could be really problematic for humanity as a whole which just as it from a distributed systems point of view is just is just terrible fault tolerance we would like to have a, another abstraction that we can fail over to and similarly what you're describing with with the the black swan vulnerability of makerdao you actually have systems in place that incentivize the holders of mkr to unwind the entire system in the event that something goes wrong and i just find that that's it's it's a humble approach and it's and it's an approach that you know i would like to see in in more stable coins like assuming stable coin is not a winner take all thing and we have multiple stable coins it would be great for them to have different fault tolerance properties where yeah if, if a black swan of one kind event uh, you know occurs maker gets unraveled you know the people get paid back in eth and bitcoin and that's fine and then you know maybe we've got a, another centralized stable coin over here that people can fail over to for a while you know we can we can fail over to to whatever the the coinbase one is or the jp morgan one is or tether or who cares you know, it's nice to have a failover mechanism. So, so I know, I know we're we're running up against time, and I guess you know the last question is, I guess, do do you have any other reflections on the world of crypto in 2019, and and what you're excited about? Any predictions you have for the near future? Yeah. So I, I was saying, I was mentioning this briefly at the very beginning, right? That I think one of the really critical steps and sort of things that are about to happen now is this the moment when regulators and governments around the world start to actually seriously look at blockchain and try to regulate it. Because what's happening in many places is that they're failing miserably because they don't understand the technology. But in other places also are actually succeeding very well because they do in fact take the time that it takes to learn how the technology works and then create appropriate regulation for it. So one thing is for sure, and that is that regulation is definitely needed. And that's because a lot of blockchain products concern themselves directly with financial services and you always need to regulate financial services otherwise you get you know problematic outcomes like like the the housing bubble or whatever all sorts of financial disasters of the past and i think what's i i'm very much hoping that what we will see is that there'll become this very clear innovation advantage that will go to the countries that are able to properly regulate cryptocurrency and properly understand how to how to regulate the technology in a way that enhances the benefits but also deals with the drawbacks in a in a proportional manner and then as a result ultimately get regulation around the world to finally be able to properly interact with the advantages of blockchain so that so everyone can get to benefit from it rune christensen thanks for coming on the show it's been great talking yeah it was great thanks so much for having me GoCD is a continuous delivery tool created by ThoughtWorks. It's open source, it's free to use, and GoCD has all the features that you need for continuous delivery. 
You can model your deployment pipelines without installing any plugins. You can use the value stream map to visualize your end-to-end workflow. And if you use Kubernetes, GoCD is a natural fit to add continuous delivery to your cloud-native project. With GoCD on Kubernetes, you define your build workflow, you let GoCD provision and scale your infrastructure on the fly, and GoCD agents use Kubernetes to scale as needed. Check out gocd.org slash sedaily and learn how you can get started. GoCD was built with the learnings of the ThoughtWorks engineering team, and they have talked in such detail about building the product in previous episodes of Software Engineering Daily. ThoughtWorks was very early to the continuous delivery trend, and they know about continuous delivery as much as almost anybody in the industry. It's great to always see continued progress on GoCD with new features like Kubernetes integrations, so you know that you're investing in a continuous delivery tool that is built for the long term. You can check it out yourself at gocd.org slash sedaily. Wow! 